Okay, so we are back in Jonah. So if you need your electronic devices, you got uh, hard print, old classical like thing called a book underneath your seat too. Uh, we are going to be at Jonah. We're going to look at verses 7 through 17. Here's how we're going to begin. So the historical documentation of the Civil War um, can fill hundreds of libraries, can it not? And it does. I mean, all the official documents, the uh, records, the artifacts, the research, the print media even, and the photographic media, the eyewitness accounts, the endless journals, families still discover like journals and letters, uh, all kinds of research and historical documentation. Well, one such account at a deeply human level is of a young New England woman uh, who waits anxiously uh, for the war to end, uh, who literally is counting down the days for the war to end. And why, you ask? Because her fiancé will then return from the war and come back to her. Uh, until then, what he did, though, is he would write her almost every other day. So every other day in a week, she was getting at least three, four letters until she wasn't. And she starts trembling. And then shortly thereafter, she receives a letter. She does not recognize, uh, though, the handwriting. And it says this, there has been another terrible battle. I have been unfortunate this time. I have lost both my arms. I cannot write myself, but my comrade is writing this letter for me. I write to tell you that you are as dear to me as ever. But I shall now be dependent upon other people for the rest of my days. And I've had this letter written to release you from your engagement. She never responds to the letter. She gets on a train. She finds the hospital. She finds the hospital bed. And she finds the broken boy. I will never give you up. Jonah uh, would call that a deliverance. I will never give you up. Now, some of us this morning really feel that. It's clear to our minds. It's Real to your heart, just like that young broken boy on a hospital bed. But then for most of us, if we're honest this morning, it's not. It's not clear to our minds. It's not real to our hearts. Um, so here's the question this morning. How does deliverance move from an, an abstraction to you? to a life-changing power. How does that happen? And here's the catch. Here's the take-home. Here's the big idea. Here's what God wants to do. He wants you to feel deep in your bones. I will never <laughs> give you up. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So, uh, remember, they were calling out to their, their gods. We're going back. If you're just joining us, we're going back and forth between 1 Peter and Jonah. We're back in Jonah. So where we last left it in the first six verses, 
uh, they were calling out to their gods because there was a preternatural storm had hit them. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. They're not saying the same thing. They're not wanting to identify who's your God, right? They said to him, tell us who this has come from. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you from? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you've done? What have you done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. What a word. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, we're not going to spend as much time on that, but you need to know they fear, they fear, and now they really fear. But this isn't the kind of fear like you went for a walk in the jungle, you made the wrong turn, and there's a lion. This is the kind of fear where you make a wrong turn, and there's a lion, and the lion loves you. It's overwhelming awe, not terror. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would, as even as we heard this morning from Gilbert, that he read from John, I loved it. The spirit gives life. My words are spirit. Your words are spirit. Give us life. Give us life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the question, the question you want to put before you, you want to have in your head, you want to be working out in your heart through this sermon is how does deliverance move from an abstraction to a life-changing power? First, let's look at verse 15. If we can, we're going to put up, Malachi's put up verse 15. There we go. Uh, I want you to focus on that phrase, and the sea ceased from its raging. Do you see that? The sea ceased from its raging. This is deliverance. This is deliverance in Jonah. The sea ceases from its raging. The sea becomes calm. Nothing about deliverance in Jonah right now is abstract. So this is what we need to see. There's nothing abstract about this. There's nothing disconnected from your life about the sea becoming silent and there being a great calm present. There's nothing disconnected, distant, unfelt. It's all felt <laughs> deeply in the bones. So this is what we need to know, first of all. We need to see this. 
we need to see that deliverance is not abstract. Because sometimes we tend to think of it and treat it as if it is. All right, how does deliverance move from abstraction to life-changing power? Second, everyone in the book of Jonah, do you see this? Everyone, everyone in the book of Jonah believes in deliverance. The sailors believe in deliverance. In verse 3, they're call, call out to your gods. In verse 6, call out to your gods. In verse 7 and 8, cast lots. We've got to find out what God did this so it stops. And then in verse 11, tell us how the storm stops. And then we get to the people of Nineveh, and they believe in deliverance. And we get to the leadership of Nineveh, the king himself. He believes in deliverance. The whale believes in deliverance. And then there's this strange plant that shows up later in Jonah, and the plant believes in deliverance. Don't miss this. Everyone believes in deliverance except Jonah. The Christian, the pastor, the church leader, the church staff person, the professional. This could be the big idea of the whole book. Everyone believes in deliverance except the church. So Jonah is saying, hey, who turns deliverance into an abstraction? Who disconnects deliverance from everyday life? Who separates the life-changing power from stress, from struggles, from sin, who disconnects the power of deliverance in a marriage, in parenting, in a culture, at work, in suffering, when you're sinned against? Who disconnects deliverance from the Christian life? From growing in your relationship with God? from the power that goes on in the church and its worship and its community and connecting to each other and its mission to the city of Waco, Jonah says, the church, you and me. That's the second thing we need to know. God is saying to you and me right now, I mean right now, right at the very beginning of this book, he's saying to you right now, you need Many, many deliverances. He's saying to you right now, your deepest need, Christian, your deepest need, church at large, in the United States right now, is deliverance. Not some new ideology, not some new educational system, not some new political candidate. The church, Christians, you and me, we need many, many deliverances. Not understanding this, Jonah is saying, not understanding this, not learning to experience deliverance as a life-changing, ongoing, present power. You know what it does to you and me? It gives us this deep feeling like 
Something has swallowed me. It makes churches feel like something has swallowed us. The storm is silenced, a great calm is present, and the sea ceased from its raging. How does deliverance move from an abstraction to life-changing power? Jonah 1.7. Let's go to 1.7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. Lots were usually marked stones or sticks, or I don't know what they had left that they didn't throw overboard. So I don't know what they're using, probably. But what you do is you, how many people are here? How many sailors? Ten. Ten sailors, ten rocks. Let's mark a different mark on each rock for each of you. You get this stone with this mark. You get this stone from this mark. Throw it in some sort of receptacle, something, some sort of container, and you shake it up until one of them falls out. And the question is, how does one of them fall out? And the answer is, by the hand of a God. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us in whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where are you coming from? What is your country? What people are you? Okay, so listen. You need to know. I need to know. We need to get in it. This whole book is doing something. This whole book, this is what's so great. The whole book is not an abstraction. It's not a, it's not, none of the Bible is an abstraction. But there are certain parts of the Bible that's easier to treat as an abstraction. Let's say you get into Romans and you get into Romans 9 and you want to start talking about, like, God's sovereignty. And I see it all the time. We go to Romans 9 and, man, everyone's arguing over God's sovereignty. But they miss the beginning of the book because at the very beginning of that chapter, Paul says, it's not an abstraction to Paul. Paul's saying, I wish, I wish I could take my kinsman's place And all of a sudden, when you get to all this discussion and debate about free will and sovereignty, he's already set. It's not abstract. He's already set the whole tone of the whole chapter. It's substitution. I wish I could take their place. Now let's talk about free will and sovereignty. It's not an abstraction. Nothing in the Bible is an abstraction. So when you get to Jonah, what Jonah is actually doing by telling the historical story, it's taking you into the boat. Everything about it, it's almost like you're following Jonah and it tells you he paid his fare and he got on the boat and we're following him. Wow, okay. And then we feel the storm. And so everybody in this storm knows this is not a natural storm. Everyone knows this. It's something supernatural. So what do you do when you're in a supernatural storm? Well, everybody knows what you do. You call on your gods, of course, verse 6. You find out what God is doing this, of course, verse 7 and 8. Now, some of you that are visiting, we're going to do a theology on dark next week. We're going to spend more time on what I'm about ready to mention. (laughs) You know, I really want to hand out pacifiers to everybody when you come into theology on dark, when we talk about demons and angels. You're going to have nightmares the whole week, guaranteed. I'm going to scare the daylights out of you. That's my goal, by the way. Um, Here's what you need to know. Right now, we can't talk about everything. Remember, they're trying to figure out what God is doing this? 
Uh, you need to know that this understanding of the gods isn't just some pre-modern ignorance. Like, oh, you poor, unlightened people. Are you cave people? You ancient people? Um, this understanding of the gods was slash is, we'll let you determine that next week. It is the reality of the unseen world. Ever since the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel happens right after the second creation. The new Adams and Eves, after the flood, God starts over again, and they sin again. And the human race is scattered into the wilderness of the gods. Divided into nations. So, gulp. So whether you're an ancient person, a modern person, a skeptic, or a church person, all of us do the same thing in a storm. What do we do? We call on our gods to deliver us. Control will deliver me. More effort will deliver me. The state will deliver me. Political power will deliver me. Feeling good will deliver me. A better wife will deliver me. My love and commitment to God will deliver me. I'm going to be extra serious about sin will deliver me. Money will deliver me. My spiritual performance will deliver me. And then we also tell others to call on their gods too, right? You're a victim. They're the storm. You need a better husband. He's the storm. You deserve to be happy. That's just a slight rain shower over there. You need self-actualization. There's no storm over there. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, son? What's wrong with you, daughter? What's wrong with you, person? What's wrong with you? Work harder, be better, do better. Get after it. How does deliverance move from abstraction to a life-changing power? I want you to see what's happening. After they call on the lesser gods, and after casting lots to try to connect to the lesser gods, we read this. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. In other words, the lesser gods don't deliver. When you experience this, when I experience this, and we all do, because if you're thinking, well, I don't do this, Jonah's saying, no, you're all in the boat. Remember, we all went in the boat with Jonah. We're all in the boat. The text means the human race is in the boat. There's no one not in this boat. And so what happens here is when we experience this, when you experience your lesser gods not delivering you, when you experience the sea growing more and more tempestuous, something incredible happens. Something empower, something powerful happens. You actually feel 
your sin. Sin's no longer abstract. It's no longer what your Sunday school teacher tells you. It's no longer what your wife tells you. It's no longer what you tell your kids. You now feel it. And you say things like this, Oh, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. How does deliverance move from abstraction to a life-changing power? Answer number one from the text is, when our lesser gods don't deliver. Here's one more answer, one more thing that doesn't deliver, and we've got to look at it. Look at verse 13. Can we put verse 13 up there? Nevertheless, so nevertheless is now after the lesser God's not delivering. Nevertheless, after this has happened, the men rode hard. This is phenomenal. The literal Hebrew is saying the men were digging a hole. I mean, get this, to get back to dry land. In other words, the picture here is they're trying to dig a hole straight through the sea to find some dry land down there. And you and I are thinking, that's impossible. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. The second most powerful words in the world and the whole cosmos are in this this text right now. The second most life-changing words in all the world on the planet are in this text right now. The most freeing words in all of human history are in this text right now. Are you ready? But they could not. But they could not. But they could not. But they could not. The Apostle Paul says these exact same words. We just looked at them in our liturgy. He says it this way. He asks... Now, he's asking as an apostle. He's asking as a Christian. He's asking as a church leader. He's asking as the greatest man who ever lived. And you know I'm a Greek geek. He's asking in the present tense. Who will deliver me? And Paul's answer is, number one, not me. Who will deliver me? The sailors' first answer is, the sailors come to the conclusion, not the lesser gods. And the second conclusion is, not me. We can't. How does deliverance move from abstraction to life-changing power? Answer number one, when our lesser gods don't deliver. Answer number two, when we, when I, don't deliver. Jonah 1.14, therefore, now, 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 nothing's abstract. Nothing. Nothing is abstract right now. Therefore, now, they, we, call out to the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh. They call out to Yahweh. Literally, they call out to the good news God. They call out to the God who loves those who trust in lesser gods. 
They call out to the God who moves towards those who trust themselves. That's what Yahweh means. It's the grace name. It's the personal name. It's the name that God has said at the very beginning. At the very beginning when he is saying, here's who I am. And he wants to teach all of us who he is. He says, I'm Yahweh. I'm the good news God. I'm the grace God. Amongst all the lesser gods. All the lesser gods, when you sin against them, they will never forgive you. All the lesser gods will never love you. All the lesser gods you can never please enough. But I'm the good news God. So what they say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay us not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So now we get to it. What delivers them? What is the present power of deliverance? What is the life-changing force in this passage for you as a Christian, for you as a skeptic, for you as a church leader, for you who does not know Jesus and doesn't want to be in the church? Answer, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Do you see it? The life-changing power of deliverance is a sacrifice. A sacrifice. Jonah is sacrificed to save the sinners, sailors. Which is so ironic. I mean, Jonah is a savior. And everyone who reads this text is like, eyebrows go like this, face squinches. You got resting bee face. What? What? Years later, Jesus says something scandalous to everyone who knows the Jonah story. He says, I'm the greater Jonah. This is not a compliment. This is not how you win friends and influence people. This is not how you start a movement. Come follow me. I'm the greater Jonah. What? Jonah is a spiritual loser. Jonah is the worst prophet who ever lived until Peter came along. <laughs> Oh, Jonah was so relieved when Peter showed up. Peter! Thank you, brother. Jonah is a sinful sacrifice. Jonah's thrown overboard for his sin. Jonah's thrown overboard for running away from God. Jonah's thrown overboard, and the storm happens to pay the debt for his running away from God's mission for him as a prophet to go to Nineveh. Jonah is thrown over because he's a sinful prophet a sinful sacrifice. He delivers the sailors by accident. He delivers the sailors by being a sinner. But Jesus is the sinless sacrifice, right? The blameless sacrifice, the righteous sacrifice, the holy sacrifice, the spotless sacrifice, the Lamb of God sacrifice. Until he's not. Until he's the greater Jonah. Until he's the greater sinful sacrifice. Jesus is thrown overboard 
He's thrown overboard. How do I want to say this? He's thrown overboard not for his sin, but for your sin until it's not. In other words, what happens is so strange because he so, like, becomes identified with you and he so, like, takes your sin upon you and takes your condemnation and my payment, my death debt, uh, my storm, he takes it so upon us so comprehensively, so perfectly, so truly, so vitally, so literally, so realistically that it's no longer my sin. It's his sin. Wait a minute. No, it's no longer my sin. If you're a Christian right now, your sin is no longer your sin. Your condemnation is no longer your condemnation. He's the greater Jonah. He's thrown overboard because he is the sinner. I don't even know what I want to say right now. I think I want to say this. That is the present power for you as a Christian. The sea is silenced. A great calm is present right now whether you feel it or not. Right now in your relationships whether you feel it or not. Right now, regardless of your spiritual temperature, regardless of how you're doing, that is true. And you say, but I feel... Who cares what you feel? Your sin is now his sin. He's now the sinner. You know what I think? You know what I think the scars are still there in his hand? So he can show you his scars and look you dead in the eye and say to you and say to me right now as a Christian and in heaven, it's no longer your sin. It's my sin. It's mine. I will never give you up. That's it.